You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The men lay resting or preparing their food or penning notes for the anxious ones at home until the hour of sultriest noon was past. One bit of culinary enterprise, interesting victually, if not vitally, during this time to several men of one group, deserves chronicling as picturing a bit of soldier life and demonstrating the perfectness of military and moral discipline existing in the regiment. That group gave undivided attention to an endeavor of fire and water to reduce the flesh of a veteran fowl in a pot to an impressionable condition. That fowl a little before was boldly bossing his little company in the barnyard. Sergeant DeForest coveted it, his mouth moist in thought of the delicious fricassees it was evidently created for. But he was too conscientious and too soldierly to lay his hands upon it until unquestioned authority was acquired. He approached Adjutant Doton and gravely requested permission to take the fowl under his protection and introduce it to some of his comrades. The adjutant sympathized with man and bird and thought that they should be friends, and amid the crack of rifles and banging of artillery, the sergeant pursued his game until victorious. When the ball opened later, that poultry was still in the pot, and it is still a conundrum with us what became of Al DeForest's chicken. Private Henry Stevens, 14th Connecticut Infantry, 2nd Corps, Army of the Potomac. A little further, we take temporary position in the hollow of a field. Before us is a rising slope which hides the Yankee position from view. To the right of our front, some quarter of a mile, is a brick house near which one of our batteries now and then opens on the enemy who are generally ready to respond to the harsh greeting. Around us are some trees with very small green apples, and while we are resting here, we amuse ourselves by pelting each other with green apples. So frivolous men can be, even in the hour of death. Again, orders come for us to lie down in line of battle, that all the cannon on our side will open at a given signal, will continue for an hour, and upon their ceasing, we are to charge straight ahead over the open field and sweep from our path anything in the shape of a Yankee that attempts to oppose our progress. This order is transmitted from regiment to regiment, from brigade to brigade, and we rest a long time awaiting the signal. Captain John Dooley, 1st Virginia Infantry, Kemper's Brigade, Pickett's Division, Army of Northern Virginia. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 372 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last show to talk about the preparations on July 3rd on the Confederate side for the big artillery bombardment that would precede Pickett's Charge. And we also looked at the Federal units on Cemetery Ridge that would be on the receiving end of that cannon fire. And then by the end of the last episode, an eerie quiet had settled over the battlefield as there was a lull in the fighting. On Seminary Ridge, Confederate artillerists stood to their guns, waiting for the signal to open fire, while the gray and butternut-clad rebel infantrymen under Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble were either still filing into position or were already sitting or lying in regimental lines out of sight of the Yankees across the way. Many soldiers on both sides took advantage of the noonday lull to write letters home, boil up some coffee, nibble on hardtack, or simply close their eyes and doze in the heat. Things became so still, so quiet, that one Federal on Cemetery Hill wrote that he could, quote, distinctly hear the hum of honeybees working. George Meade was one of those who took time to write home. In a letter pinned to his wife around 9 o'clock that Friday morning, he briefly gave her the news of the fighting thus far and then noted that, quote, The army is in fine spirits and everyone determined to do or die. If the Federal Army commander had got any sleep at all after the Council of War at the Leicester House late the previous evening, it would have been just a few hours' worth because about 4 a.m. he would have been awakened by the booming of Federal artillery opening an intensive fire on the Confederate positions on Culp's Hill. Then, throughout the morning, Meade received reports of the progress of the fighting at Culp's Hill. Newspaper correspondent Whitelaw Reed wrote, Headquarters presented a busy scene. Meade was receiving reports on the Little White House, coming occasionally to the door to address someone in the group of staff officers under the tree. Quick and nervous in his movements, but calm, and, as it seemed to me, lit up with the glow of the occasion. The reports coming to Meade from Culp's Hill indicated there was actually little to worry about there, on the right end of the Federal's fishhook line of defense, as throughout the morning hours, the repeated enemy attempts to storm the hill were repulsed. With matters seemingly well in hand in that sector, George Meade sought to bolster the defenses on Cemetery Ridge, since he was still convinced that Lee, here on the third day of the battle, would attempt to strike the center of the Federal lines, as Meade had indicated to John Gibbon after the close of the Council of War the night before. And so, as early as 8 a.m. on the morning of the 3rd, Meade sent orders to 6th Corps Commander John Sedgwick, instructing Sedgwick to move units to be in position to better reinforce Winfield Scott Hancock's 2nd Corps troops there on Cemetery Ridge. Meade's orders to Sedgwick indicated his belief that the Confederates intended, quote, to make an attempt to pierce our center. 
And then, no sooner had the fighting ended on Culp's Hill than Meade sent a message to 12th Corps Commander Henry Slocum, directing him to send all the troops he could spare to reinforce the portion of the line along Cemetery Ridge. Meade also sent out orders, moving men from battered 1st Corps and 3rd Corps brigades into position to support Hancock's 2nd Corps. It's not likely Meade knew the exact numbers, but by noon on July 3rd, he had positioned and alerted roughly 13,000 troops to support their comrades of the 2nd Corps who were holding the center of the Federal line along Cemetery Ridge. And, as we mentioned in the last show, the Army of the Potomac's artillery chief, Henry Hunt, had also been busy, not only visiting the guns positioned along the front line, but also sending word for as many batteries as possible from the artillery reserve to be ready for action. That meant that by noon, Hunt had over 200 guns either deployed from Cemetery Hill down to Little Round Top or in reserve. All of that's to say that throughout the morning of July 3rd, both Meade and Hunt had readied men and batteries for the possibility that the enemy would launch an attack against the center of the line. With both men thinking ahead, and ensuring that the pieces would be in place here on the chessboard of the battlefield to defeat any such move by Robert E. Lee. George Meade on that Friday morning, besides issuing orders from his headquarters at the widow Leister's house, also took the time to ride the lines. In company with Winfield Scott Hancock, he inspected the center of the Cemetery Ridge Line, which, of course, was the responsibility of Hancock's 2nd Corps. Lieutenant Frank Haskell of John Gibbon's staff observed the commanding general as he made his inspection of the position. Quote, He was early on horseback this morning and rode along the whole line, looking to it himself, and with glass in hand, sweeping the woods and fields in the direction of the enemy to see if anything of him could be discovered. His manner was calm and serious, but earnest. Meade completed his tour of the line by riding up Little Round Top with his chief engineer, Governor K. Warren. Taking out his binoculars, Meade examined the enemy lines, observing the ever-growing enemy gun line and limbering in the fields out in front of Seminary Ridge. That impressive gun line facing the center of the federal lines was a sure indication of the coming enemy assault. Back at headquarters, Meade received an invitation to a late breakfast. According to Frank Haskell, earlier that morning, someone had procured, quote, a few chickens, some butter, and one huge loaf of bread, end quote. As a veritable feast of stewed chicken, potatoes, toast, and butter was being prepared, John Gibbon rode over to the Leicester house and asked Meade if he had eaten anything for breakfast. When Meade replied in the negative, Gibbon invited him to come and share a meal with him. At first, Meade begged off, saying he needed to remain at headquarters, but Gibbon was persistent, pointing out that they would be eating nearby, in plain sight at the Leicester house, in case any messengers needed to find Meade. Finally, he urged Meade to eat some hot food to, quote, keep up his physical strength. 
Finally yielding to Gibbon's urging, Meade went off with him. Reaching the spot where Gibbon's mess was located, Meade sat on one of the stools, while Hancock was seated on the other, proving that rank hath its privileges. While Gibbon sat on the ground, they were joined by acting First Corps commander John Newton and Alfred Pleasanton, the Army's cavalry chief. Staff officers stood around the group, listening to the general's conversation, and also hoping for a bite to eat, in which they were not disappointed, since Lieutenant Haskell took pains to note that, quote, there was enough cooked for all of us, and from General Meade to the youngest second lieutenant, we all had a most hearty and well-relished dinner. After they'd finished eating, the generals smoked cigars while talking a bit more, And then about 12.30, Meade returned to the Leicester house. Two days earlier, on July 1st, while Meade was still at his headquarters at Tawnytown, his son and member of his staff, George Jr., wrote a letter to his mother, telling her, This is a very important point in the history of this war, as the next fight will decide something. And now, on July 3rd, as George Gordon Meade returned to his headquarters at the Leicester House, that moment of decision was fast approaching. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Across the way, the veteran officer Lee had put in charge of the attack against the Federal Center was unenthusiastic about its chances for success. James Longstreet would afterward admit, quote, Never was I so depressed as upon that day. 
With my knowledge of the situation, I could see the desperate and hopeless nature of the charge and the cruel slaughter it would cause. In his memoirs, Longstreet wrote, quote, He, that is Robert E. Lee, knew that I did not believe that success was possible, and he should have put an officer in charge who had more confidence in his plan. Two-thirds of the troops were of other commands, and there was no reason for putting the assaulting forces under my charge. Longstreet's admission is quite amazing. He confesses that on July 3rd at Gettysburg, he simply didn't want to organize an operation that he had no faith in. Since six of the nine brigades forming the corps of the attacking force were from A.P. Hill's corps, Longstreet is clearly trying to make the case that Lee should have put Hill in charge of the operation. However, that never seems to have crossed Robert E. Lee's mind. Remember, as Lee originally planned it, the assault on the Federal Center that Friday was to be made solely by troops from Longstreet's Corps. When the plan had to be changed and Hill's brigades substituted in for two-thirds of the attacking force, Lee assigned them to Longstreet's command, seemingly as a matter of course. Lee's selection of Longstreet to organize the attack either speaks well of his continued confidence in his old warhorse, or speaks to Lee's lack of confidence in A.P. Hill, who was commanding a corps for the first time in a major battle, and in addition, was obviously physically unwell at Gettysburg. All that can be said for certain is that Lee, right or wrong, left Longstreet as the designated leader of the operation, which one would hope Lee wouldn't have done if he had any doubts whatsoever about Longstreet's generalship. So, Longstreet would command the operation, but, by his own admission, he did so only with the greatest reluctance and only out of duty. Nowhere is Longstreet's lack of enthusiasm more evident than in the remarkable series of exchanges that took place between him and Porter Alexander prior to the start of the big artillery bombardment. In his memoirs, Longstreet recalled, quote, I was so much impressed with the hopelessness of the charge that I wrote the following note to Alexander. If the artillery fire does not have the effect to drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize him so as to make our efforts pretty certain, I would prefer that you should not advise General Pickett to make the charge. I shall rely a great deal on your judgment to determine the matter and shall expect you to let Pickett know when the moment comes. Robert E. Lee had proposed this attack. Longstreet had opposed it believing that it couldn't succeed and would result in a needless sacrifice of lives. So now Longstreet tried to shift responsibility for the assault going forward to Porter Alexander. Alexander later said that he received Longstreet's message with a quote-unquote sudden shock. The message, which he received about noon, was the first time Alexander had any inkling that Longstreet had deep reservations about making the assault, and naturally, Alexander began to feel uncomfortable with the responsibility that Longstreet was trying to place upon his shoulders. The artillery officer may not have understood what all was going on behind the scenes, but he immediately understood that Longstreet, for some reason, 
was trying to place responsibility for whether or not the attack would be made on his shoulders, and Porter Alexander felt more than a bit uneasy with that responsibility. He knew the Federals held a strong position and that the assault would be costly in terms of casualties, but, quote, while ready to attack anything on General Lee's or Longstreet's judgment, I was by no means ready to go for that place on my own judgment. Faced with this unexpected situation, Alexander sought the advice of Brigadier General Ambrose Wright. Wright was a fellow Georgian who commanded a brigade in Anderson's division of Hill's Corps, and his men had attacked the Federals on Cemetery Ridge on July 2nd at almost exactly the same spot where Pickett's troops were about to strike them. Although repulsed, Wright afterward had told anyone who would listen that his men had come tantalizingly close to breaking through and carrying the crest of Cemetery Ridge. Now, Rand's Wright advised Alexander to write to Longstreet, stating his reservations. This Porter Alexander did, writing, quote, General, I will only be able to judge the effect of our fire on the enemy by his return fire, as his infantry is little exposed to view, and the smoke will obscure the field. If, as I infer from your note, there is any alternative to this attack, it should be carefully considered before opening our fire, for it will take all the artillery ammunition we have left to test this one, and if the result is unfavorable, we will have none left for another effort. And even if this is entirely successful, it can only be so at very bloody cost. Longstreet couldn't have been surprised by the tone or content of Alexander's note but he was not yet prepared to give up the last possibility of postponing or canceling the assault. In his memoirs, Longstreet explained how, quote, I still desired to save my men and felt that if the artillery did not produce the desired effect, I would be justified in holding Pickett off. So Longstreet sent a second message to Porter Alexander, quote, Colonel, the intention is to advance the infantry if the artillery has the desired effect of driving the enemies off, or having other effect such as to warrant us in making the attack. When the moment arrives, advise General Pickett, and of course advance such artillery as you can use in aiding the attack. Longstreet's second note, which arrived about a quarter after twelve, did nothing to alleviate Alexander's unease. He later said, I hardly knew whether this left me discretion or not, but at any rate, it seemed decided that the artillery must open. Alexander passed Longstreet's second note to Wright, who read it and then stated, He has put the responsibility back upon you. Alexander recalled how, quote, I felt that if we went as far as opening fire, we could not draw back, but the infantry must go too. He looked at Wright, whose brigade had made it across those very fields not 24 hours before, and asked, What do you think of it? Is it as hard to get there as it looks? Wright responded, Well, Alexander, it is mostly a question of supports. It is not as hard to get there as it looks. The real difficulty is to stay there after you get there, for the whole infernal Yankee army is up there in a bunch. But, still not certain, 
Alexander rode over to George Pickett. He had no intention of sharing with Pickett the details of Longstreet's communications, but Alexander needed to know if Pickett himself believed he could make the charge and break the enemy's line. Alexander noted that Pickett, quote, was in excellent spirits, end quote, and was confident of success. That settled it. There seemed nothing more to do or say, so Porter Alexander scribbled a last message to Longstreet. General, when the fire is at its best, I will advise General Pickett to advance. Longstreet had shifted a good deal of the responsibility of getting the assault underway onto Alexander's shoulders. When it came to sending the infantry forward, he later admitted feeling unable to, quote, trust myself with the entire responsibility. His own words and his remarkable exchange of messages with Alexander clearly shows that Longstreet hoped to create a situation where the attack would be called off by someone else the lives of the rebel infantry would be saved, and he would avoid the primary blame for Lee's plan not being carried out. This would explain why he communicated with Alexander in these written messages when the artillery officer was only a few hundred yards away. It left a paper trail of responsibility leading toward Alexander. Also, a face-to-face meeting would have let Porter Alexander press Longstreet for more detailed instructions, which Longstreet obviously didn't want to give him. In the end, though, Porter Alexander's resolution to trust in Lee's plan derailed Longstreet's machinations. When Longstreet read Alexander's brief final message, he realized the die was cast and he had an order prepared for his chief of artillery, Colonel James Walton. Longstreet's courier found Walton near the Peach Orchard, where he was waiting with Major Benjamin Eschleman's Louisiana Artillery Battalion. Walton read Longstreet's message. It said, Let the batteries open. Order great care and precision in firing. Walton passed the order to Eschleman and instructed him to have two guns fired in rapid succession which was the agreed-upon signal for the bombardment to begin. Eshleman passed on the order to Captain Merritt Miller's 3rd Company. One of Miller's Napoleons banged, shattering the unnatural quiet that had enveloped the battlefield. A faulty friction primer delayed the other gun's firing for a few seconds, but then the second shot sounded. Up and down the long Confederate gun line in front of Seminary Ridge, dozens of lanyards were yanked, and the roar of hellfire engulfed the battlefield. In town, Professor Michael Jacobs of Gettysburg College was a meticulous recorder of the weather during the battle. Today, he noted that the great Confederate bombardment began at precisely 1.07 p.m. All along the Confederate gun line, smoke boiled up with each shot, smothering the ground in a curtain of white. A watching Alabaman thought he was seeing Judgment Day. He supposed, quote, When the heavens are rolled together as a scroll in the last days, I doubt whether it will present a more awe-inspiring sight. 
Federal soldiers on Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge, the targets of the cannonade, also turned to biblical images to describe the sound and fury of the enemy bombardment. Sergeant Benjamin Hurst of the 14th Connecticut thought, quote, It seemed as if all the demons of hell were let loose and were howling through the air. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Fighting for the Confederacy, The Personal Recollections of General Edward Porter Alexander by Gary W. Gallagher. Alexander was involved in nearly all the big battles in the Eastern Theater, from First Manassas to Appomattox, and his duties brought him into contact with most of the major figures in the Army of Northern Virginia. His personal recollections offer some of the best first-hand insights and candid analysis you'll find by any Civil War veteran. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find our contact information and also links to the show's Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram account. As we chug across the finish line with this show, we want to take a second to thank the newest members of the Strawfit Brigade for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Paul K., Anthony W., Mark J., Laura E., and Mark H. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.